be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning as we continue our series in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I will be reading the whole chapter. So Nehemiah chapter 4. And uh, as I read the word of God this morning, I would invite you to stand as you're able, as a, out of reverence for God's word. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and, my labor, and may labor by day. So neither for us by night, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. 
Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And have a seat. Christ community. My name is Nate Himes, and it is a pleasure to be sharing God's word with you this morning as we continue our way through Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were written in order to remind future generations of God's ongoing sovereignty in human history and events. They strengthen our faith by showing us how God upheld his covenant promises to his covenant people, the Israelites. And they also show us by what means God accomplished his miraculous and mighty works and in doing so provide examples that we may be able to apply to our lives today. Though the circumstances are very different, we also, as the new Israel, God's covenant people, are also called to build something. And that something is Christ's kingdom, his new temple, which is a people, a family of believers of Christ that will be made up of people from all places and nations and tribes and tongues in the world. So we, the people of the church, people of Christ's community, people of that temple and that kingdom are called to be a part of that building work. And as we heard last week from chapter three, we all have a role to play in this work. Every one of us. And that starts as soon as we put our faith in Christ. Doesn't matter if we're nine or 90. In chapter 6, we're going to learn that the wall was built in a miraculously short 52-day span of time. But here in chapter 4, we're going to see how the wall was built in spite of persistent and increasing opposition. And what I believe Nehemiah intended for us to see is that God overcomes the opposition through prayer and action of his people. This account is structured in two main parts. The first includes three instances of opposition, followed by a response of prayer and action. And then in the second half of the chapter, the narrative slows down and Nehemiah describes in detail how they watched over each other. And so we're going to follow that structure and outline, but let's ask God for his help as we do so. Heavenly Father, we need your help right now just even to to pay attention. It's hot in here, Lord. Help Awaken our spirits where you are abiding and convict us and encourage us and strengthen us with your word this morning so that we will be able to withstand opposition and endure in the work that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, Nehemiah wants us to see that the opposition was thwarted and the wall built by God working through the prayer and action of his people. Let's go back to verse 1 and consider the first instance of opposition. Verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the armies of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
Here we have Sambalot and Tobiah again. We are introduced them back in chapter 2. And they're trying to use their verbal attack to discourage them from starting or completing the work. And how does Nehemiah respond? He responds to their verbal opposition by praying to God according to one of God's promises. Let's take a look at verse 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Opposition and prayer. And this prayer may be a bit jolting or unsettling to our, our modern ears. But to the original audience, it would not have been so. These kinds of prayers, we call them imprecatory prayers or psalms. We find them throughout the Bible. And not only in the Old Testament, but they're in the New Testament as well. But Nehemiah's prayer would not have shocked them, in part because it is in full agreement with a promise God had made to his covenant people. When God called Abraham the father of the nation of Israel, he promised him several things. He promised him that he would produce so many offspring that they would form a nation that could not be counted. He promised them that they would have a place to worship God, their own land. And that's the place that they're trying to rebuild right now. And he promised that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed Abraham. And so when Nehemiah prays this prayer, he is simply praying in accordance with one of God's promises, asking God to fulfill what he said he was going to do. So he responds to the opposition through prayer. Let's look at the next occurrence of opposition. Nehemiah and the crew get back to building the wall. They complete it to half of its height. Let's pick up in verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Sambalot's words didn't hurt Nehemiah. And so he's bringing the proverbial sticks and stones now. An army made of several states in the region is approaching from all sides. And they intend to do more than just cause confusion. They are prepared to kill and destroy. So how does Nehemiah respond? Verse 9. And we prayed to our God. Opposition and prayer. Opposition and prayer. Finally, the third round of opposition in verses 10 through 12. The threat of war is still on their doorstep, but now the opposition is coming from within. We read in verse 10 that the Israelites working on the wall are beginning to despair. There's too much rubble. They're being burdened and they're tired. And then in verse 12, the other Jews who were not working on the wall, but living in the surrounding areas closest to this approaching army, 10 times send word to Nehemiah, begging for him to send help to where they're at. The people are despairing and calling for the work to stop. How does Nehemiah respond? Verse 14, he says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Nehemiah responds to opposition by turning to God again, this time calling upon the people to pray in remembrance of God's great and awesome character. Opposition 
and prayer. This is a big deal to Nehemiah. He wants it to be very clear that when we get to chapter six and we see the wall completed, that the future readers of this history would know for certain that it was God who overcame the opposition through the people's prayers. They were not resting on their skill, their numbers, their strategies, their weapons, that they had all of those things, as we will see. But their hope and faith rested squarely on the power and promises of God. Indeed, after they pushed through these three attacks, we read in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Who frustrated their plan? Who overcame the opposition? The credit is not given to Nehemiah and his great plan or leadership. The credit is given to God. It is chiefly by God's power and favor that his people will overcome opposition to his kingdom building plan. And this is good news, my friends. There is no army that can stand against our God and his plans to build his kingdom through you and through me. There's no opposition that will be too strong for him. And so there will be no opposition that will be too strong for us. And we have access to this great and awesome God through our prayers. It's a miracle. The God who created the universe, who has all this power, cares about what we pray to him. They matter to him. Our prayers demonstrate to God that we indeed are trusting in him to do something that we admit we cannot do ourselves. And it shows him the level of our desperation. There are so many instances throughout the scriptures that prove that God pays special attention to and is particularly moved by the prayers made in faith and desperation. On a more specific and practical note, we can learn something from Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer, which is that it is important for us to know and rightly apply the promises of God to our current situations. Jen Wilkins has a really helpful article on the Gospel Coalition website about this, which is entitled, Which Promises Are For Me? And she doesn't list out the promises that apply to us today. Rather, she explains in it common pitfalls in applying God's promises to our lives today. One of those is what she calls overlooking the if. God makes lots of promises to us in the scriptures that are unconditional, that are not dependent on what we or anyone else do. He is going to see them through, regardless of anything else. But many of his promises are conditioned on our actions or our faith. James 4.8 is an example of this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When I was a freshman at the U of I, Uh, My first semester, I was really struggling in a lot of ways. I was struggling academically, which was a new thing for me. I didn't really struggle with schoolwork in high school, but I was really struggling that first semester. I was struggling in a relationship that I was in. I was struggling spiritually. I had gotten connected with, you know, a small group right away, but I had failed to get connected with the local church, the body of believers. I wasn't really seeking God in meaningful ways in my own personal life through prayer or or reading the word. And I was really discouraged, really struggling. And I remember calling up one of my brothers and kind of 
talking to him about this and saying, oh, I really feel distant from God and not sure why. And he pointed me back to this promise in James. He said, Nate, God promises that he will draw near to you if you draw near to him. So that promise is conditioned on the if. And it's important that we know and correctly apply God's promises to our lives today. Nehemiah knew the promises God made to Abraham, and he knew that it still fully applied to his situation. So not only should we turn to God in prayer when we experience opposition, but we need to prepare ourselves for that day, again, by knowing God's promises and when and how to pray them accordingly. As we looked at each of these instances of opposition and Nehemiah's response, I highlighted only part of his response, his prayer. But his response was actually twofold, prayer and action. And in some ways, this may seem contradictory to us. If we are putting our trust in God's power and promises, and we are wanting the world to see that it is truly him accomplishing the victory, then why are we taking action? But that's what they do. So let's take a look together. In response to Sambalot and Tobiah's verbal opposition, Nehemiah records his imprecatory prayer and then continues on with the story saying, so we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Prayer and action. In response to their physical opposition, Nehemiah records, so we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night, prayer and action. And after the internal opposition, Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Prayer and action, prayer and action, prayer and action. And this may seem like an obvious thing to do, but there are certainly times when we only pray and fail to take action. Perhaps there's a situation in your life right now that you are wanting to be different or you're wanting it to be better. Perhaps there's an aspect of this world in which God's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven. And you are burdened by that injustice. Hopefully you have been bringing these needs or burdens to God in prayer. But perhaps God is wanting you to also take action or perhaps take even greater action than you have in the past. What is holding you back? What is keeping you from taking that action? My own answers to that? Over the years, it's included laziness, the enjoyment of present comforts, a lack of concern for things going on around me, fear and what others will think, and believing that the outcome is more dependent on my ability than it really is, and therefore not trying out of a fear of failure. And that one almost caused me to turn down the opportunity to preach this morning. What is keeping you from taking action? I think one of the biggest reasons sometimes is that we fail uh, to, or we underestimate the importance of our action. And this may especially be true if you believe in the sovereignty of God in all things. 
If God is in control of everything and is going to accomplish everything he plans to accomplish, then what does it matter if I pray or take action? He's going to do it anyways, right? It's a good question to consider. However, the best answer that I can give is simply that God says it matters to him. The Bible shows us over and over again that he wants us to pray and he wants us to take action even though he is completely sovereign. Let's consider Psalm 127, 1 through 3. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If you take action and set to work apart from the Lord's blessing and strength, your toast, your effort is all in vain. But notice that in this psalm, it isn't just God doing the building or the watching. There's builders, there's watchmen doing this work. So even when God is the means and guarantee and power and the wisdom of the building of his kingdom and overcoming opposition, most often he will still choose and ordain for that work to be done by people. Weak, fallible, despairing, sinful people like me. We see this principle really clearly on display at the end of Jesus' physical ministry on earth. When we see him turn the work over to his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You go and baptize them. God has entrusted the building of his kingdom to the people of his kingdom. And this is especially important to remember when we are facing opposition, because that is when we are already weary We're struggling to see the fruit and the outcome of our work. We're doubting our own abilities and we generally feel powerless. And it is in the face of opposition that we are most tempted to simply turn back, turn it all over to God, throw in the towel and doubt the significance of our role. But God has ordained for his people, for his kingdom of people to be built by his kingdom people. As we saw in chapter 3 last week, we all have a role to play in building God's kingdom. There's a place for everyone along the wall. Craig encouraged you to consider what your role is. And I want to add to that encouragement for you to know that it matters whether or not you step into that role or not. It matters. God has ordained for you to do a part of that work. For sure, he is the one producing the outcome but he is choosing to do it through our tangible actions on earth. Our God is showing us that we can overcome opposition to his kingdom building work by turning to him in prayer and taking action. But this passage really highlights one action in particular that I would be remiss if I left out. And that is the action of watching out for each other. If you consider what changes from the beginning of the chapter to the end, you'll see that the people start out somewhat isolated and undefended. But by the end, Nehemiah has brought them all together behind the wall, and they are much more prepared to defend themselves. There are three main things I see here. The people are no longer isolated. 
They are no longer unprotected. They are no longer unwilling to sacrifice dearly for one another. So when we are facing opposition, it is important that we do not remain isolated, unprotected, and uncared for. Or to look at it from another perspective, when others are going through opposition, it is important that we do not allow them to remain isolated, unprotected, and uncared for. We promote missional communities here a lot. They're smallish groups of people doing life together, pointing each other back to the gospel and the hope we have in Christ. And these are great settings to avoid isolation. But it is very possible to be a part of a group like that, even if you're sitting there in the room physically and not just on Zoom, to not experience the blessing of that community because of a lack of vulnerability and letting people close to you. And there are so many reasons, painful reasons, valid reasons why we would be afraid to be vulnerable with other people. But it doesn't change the fact that we are made for community and that we are generally better to, better off weathering opposition when we are not alone. Practically speaking, this looks like taking great courage and drawing close to others and letting them draw close to us. And one step you could do today, if that describes you, is in a few minutes, when we fill out our Connect cards, you can just put on there, I'm feeling isolated, or I would like help connecting with someone, or I want someone to disciple me. And someone will contact you and help you take that next step. Because it's when you have these kinds of people and relationships in your life that you can truly experience protection and care. And that protection isn't necessarily going to be someone standing beside you with chain mail and a sword. But it can be in the form of someone standing up for you, supporting you. Also protecting you in the form of accountability and correction. You'll have people to help you see when you are getting weary and close to burnout. You will have people to help you see your blind spots and your sin. Protection can and should also be in the form of prayer, though. I was hoping to have a couple of pictures up on the screen, but the technology was not allowing for that this morning. Um, but if they were up there, you'd see two uh, women who are very dear to me. Uh, one of them, her name is Marilyn Hill. She's 93, and she uh, lives at Clark Lindsay here in town in Retirement Village. And I met Marilyn like 16, 17 years ago, later on in that first semester of my freshman year of college, when I finally got plugged into a local church. And Marilyn has been such an encouragement to me in my life. Even though I don't even go to her church anymore and haven't for five years, she still prays for me every single day. She writes us little handwritten notes on our anniversaries and our kids' birthdays. She drives over to the ministry that I work with her check that she types out <laughs> on her typewriter and she hand delivers it and said, you know, this is for you. How is ministry going on here? How can I be praying? How are Ashley's migraines? How are the kids doing? She prays for me every single day. The other picture would have been of my grandma, Lucy, who turns 90 this week. And she has prayed for me every single day of my life. She continues to pray for us every day. And a few weeks ago, I was serving uh, at a, a ministry retreat, retreat called Deeper Still. It's a, a weekend 
healing retreat weekend for women and men who have had an abortion at some point in their past. And uh, these are really intense weekends. It's very emotionally and, and spiritually uh, stretching and difficult. We're coming against a lot of spiritual darkness in the lives of people because of the kinds of trauma and hurt that they've experienced and the, the situations surrounding their abortion stories. And we intentionally build into these retreats uh, prayer teams. We have an on-site prayer team that some of them are sitting in the back of the room where we're meeting. And some of them are in a room somewhere else in the camp. And they are praying throughout the retreat for those who are teaching, for those who are doing the direct ministry. And then we have a team of over 100 people around the state and country who we call our Watchmen on the Wall. We get that name from this chapter. And they are praying for us before the retreat, during the retreat, and the weeks after. Because we know that we can't just go in there and try and do this ministry on our own. We need people praying for us. And Marilyn and my Grandma Lucy are my prayer warriors for that retreat. And I have other people in my life who pray for me. I've got Graham and Liz Berry. They're constantly checking in. How can we be praying for you? What do you guys need? I got several texts this morning from different people saying, hey, I'm praying for you this morning and for your preaching. I hope that you all have people like this in your life. And as I thought about these two women, Marilyn and Lucy, Grandma Lucy, and thinking about the reality of that, in 10 years, they're probably going to be with the Lord. I started to worry. I'm like, I'm going to be toast without these ladies praying for me every day. What am I going to do? I started thinking like, Who, who's going to fill, fill that spot for me? Kind of selfish. And I thought, yeah, like if I'm expecting and appreciating people doing that for me, I need to be willing to do that for other people. And that requires serious sacrifice to pray for someone daily, to keep in touch with them like that. By the end of this chapter, the people were ready to sacrifice their own lives for one another and for the cause of building this wall. What motivation do we have today to be willing to risk our lives for one another in this cause of building God's kingdom. But we have the example of Christ who showed us the meaning of love and that he, in order to guarantee and purchase his kingdom of people, gave his own life for those people. As 2 Corinthians 5.14 states, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's sacrificial love can be a compelling source of motivation for us to also love others sacrificially, to be willing to allow another person to matter to us as if they were our own flesh and blood, to allow ourselves to be joyfully burdened by the needs of our brothers and sisters in God's kingdom building efforts. So as we all continue in our kingdom building work, or perhaps as we consider whether or not we're going to join it, in it or not, knowing that opposition is going to come, let's remember these examples from Nehemiah. That God will succeed in overcoming the opposition to his kingdom through the prayer and action of his people. He is guaranteeing the results, but our action or inaction matters. And it is best if we are not acting alone. 
but have the support, protection, and care of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the that your kingdom is coming. That there is a day that it is going to come in its fullness and its beauty. And you are guaranteeing that for us. But Lord, we know that you are calling us to be a part of that work. Lord, we need your help. Protect us. Encourage us. Motivate us. Help us to know your promises. To know how to apply them and pray them boldly. Help us to take action and not step back in fear or in weakness. And help us to come alongside each other and support one another in this work so that you can see your kingdom be built and that you can be glorified in its completion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.